Good morning, church. As we wrap up the retreat for 2019, I hope and pray that these messages have been encouraging to your souls as we've looked at marks of Christian maturity. On Friday night, we examined the first mark, which is a deep faith in God. And then yesterday, we looked at two more marks. The first was a humble dependence upon God. And last night, or yesterday afternoon, more specifically, we focused on what it looks like to have a forgiving heart. Now this morning brings us to the fourth and final mark of Christian maturity for this weekend. It is found in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This should be a very familiar uh, passage to you. And I trust uh, that you know, these, are, these are things that you may have heard about. And if you've grown up in the church, either this is one of those good old-fashioned Sunday school lessons. But what I want to do is look at the passage with an eye towards application regarding what it means to be a faithful friend. What does faithful friendship look like? So Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now this episode takes place fairly early in Jesus' public ministry. He is still ministering in the northern part of Israel, near his hometown. He has been teaching with authority, and he backs that teaching up with miraculous healing. It was always that, it was Jesus' uh, MO to teach with authority and then to heal. As if the healing says, yeah, he really, yeah, he, he, he really means it. <laughs> yes, his authority, as authoritative as he sounds, he is really true. He has the authority not just to teach, but look, he also has the authority to heal. And so many people at this point have been, have been hearing about Jesus. And since this is early on, people are still not sure about who he was. They were, the jury was out, so to speak, about who Jesus is. Who, I mean, what is this guy? He's like some, some special teacher? Is he a flash in the pan preacher? What, what, what are we to make of this guy? And around the northern part of Israel, people are hearing the word is getting out. And they're like, wow, this guy apparently does healing. Really? Are you sure? Really? I'll have to see that for myself. And so the jury is still out, so to speak, on who Jesus is. They're not sure how to process what they hear about Jesus. They're not sure what to make of this itinerant preacher and miracle worker who heals the sick and who casts out demons. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? And what is the source of his power? And in our passage this morning, Jesus will both speak and heal with authority. And really kind of presents us with uh, a miracle uh, that gives us this idea that actions demand a verdict. A demonstration of power from Jesus Christ. And to guide us through this narrative, I've broken this story down into five Parts into five acts, so to speak. So look with me at Mark chapter 2, and I'll just read verses 1 and 2. It says, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Now, wherever Jesus went, crowds gathered. And, and even though Jesus didn't announce his return, you know, he didn't post that he was returning or something. He didn't tell people, send a messenger ahead, tell him I'm coming to town. Somehow word got out. 
Somehow people identified uh, this itinerant preacher and miracle worker and said, that's Jesus. Jesus is coming back. Let me go spread the word. And as was customary back in that time, people were free to visit one another without informing them ahead of time. I mean, nowadays, if you kind of show up unannounced to someone's, at someone's door, they kind of give you a look like, what do you want? <laughs> What's wrong? What's the, wh- why are you here? I don't, I don't remember receiving any notification you were coming. But this is uh, ancient Near Eastern customs. And so it was considered gracious of the host that, you know, if someone shows up at your doorstep, you do whatever you do to take care of them. They're here. God has brought them here. So we're going to take care of you on the spot. So here you have a bunch of people who have decided to descend upon this one home. I can't imagine the homeowner's thoughts. Wait, who's coming now? (laughs) How many people are coming? There's no room in my house and I'm supposed to feed them great that's just fantastic there's this large group that just show up unannounced just like Jesus showed up unannounced into Capernaum but this large group have has have all centered and and gathered into what would have been probably a modest sized home and there Jesus looks around and he says, well, obviously y'all have come out to meet me and, and to hear and to talk. So let me teach you. This was the way that Jesus would typically bless people. Verse 2 says that he was speaking the word to them. And the word here for speaking is different from the word uh, that is typically used for preaching. In other words, Jesus is talking with people. There's a back and forth teaching. I like teaching. I I like preaching. I don't know if I... I guess I love preaching. Uh, It is an act of faith to come up here and preach in front of people. I don't like being in front of people. Um, And if there's like a party or a gathering, I like being in the corner. Um, and next to the snacks. But I mean, I, I like being in the corner regardless. I don't, I don't want to be in the center. But this, this particular word here, when Jesus is speaking the word to them in verse 2, it was this idea of kind of a back and forth, right? And it was kind of, well, what do you guys think about this? What does the word of God say about this? And how do you understand it? I guess uh, the most... Uh, the most common way that we would think of it is, is uh, kind of like in law school, where they use the Socratic method, where the teacher guides a, a whole classroom discussion, and he challenges those who are listening, those who are in the class, and they have to go back and forth. They have to learn by talking, by discussing, by dialoguing, by going back and forth. This is kind of what you might encounter in a Sunday school class. You know, that's one of the reasons I love teaching Sunday school when I can, um, when I'm available and when I've got enough bandwidth, I'd love to teach Sunday school class. Why? Because it's in Sunday school class that people ask, oh, that's a good question. That's a good point you bring up, Pastor. Um, they don't call me Pastor. They just call me John, usually, unless they're afraid of me. But then, then they kind of they say like, oh, but what about this situation? And, you know, 
Of course, this situation probably has something to do with that person. Maybe not that person, but maybe that person's friend, right? Oh, I have a friend who's dealing with this situation. How does this passage, how does this teaching relate to this particular situation? And of course, we can speak to that in the moment. But of course, when, when pastors up, are up here preaching, we can't just invent or project some sort of story uh, background that you're dealing with in your personal life. That only comes through more interaction. And so Jesus is kind of doing this Sunday school style, Socratic method teaching, going back and forth with people to teach them God's word. And among the crowd, there were five men who approached, who were more desperate than most. They had had reached a conclusion about who Jesus was. He was someone special. And they wanted to address their paralyzed friend's predicament. So the curious crowds are presented to us in verses 1 to 2. And in verses 3 and 4, we see the paralytic's predicament. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says, And they came, this group of men, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the paralytic on which the paralytic, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So these five men are kind of approaching the house. They see that the house is overcrowded. They might see that some people are standing at the threshold of the door, you know, on tippy toes trying to peek in. They obviously infer from that that, okay, you got a packed out house. The parallel account in Luke chapter 5 tells us that these men even tried to get in but were unsuccessful. But again, this home seems to be so crowded that it's standing room only. There are people probably gathering outside the door trying to push their way in. And so in light of the situation, it would have made perfect sense for them to give up. For them to, with their paralyzed friend, one on each corner just holding him and just kind of going... We tried, man. It would have made sense to kind of go, I guess we need to move faster next time. I guess by the time word reached, we may have been the last to find out in town. It's, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. I'm sorry. But these men were, were different. These men were desperate. They would not... There's some physical barrier... I'm going to knock it down. You know, you talk to people like this who are kind of often in the business world. They're kind of the why not people, right? They're kind of like big, hairy, audacious goals kind of people, right? They're kind of, you know, you you say, oh, I'm working on this project. Oh, okay. So why isn't it done? Oh, well, I ran into this problem. So how are you going to fix it? You know, kind of, when you meet some of these people, it's kind of like, I'm not taking no for an answer. Oh, there's kind of some obstacle in the way. You knock that down. Is there a crowded room? You make room. Is there a roof? We'll just lift it off. And that's, that's this group of people. They're so driven, so motivated, so compelled to see Jesus that they go up to some stranger's house and remove the roof. <laughs> you know, when you think about something like that, it's like, oh, man, I have to wake up early for church. Yeah, you have to remove the roof? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, did you have to drive cross country? No. <laughs> Do some, you know, heavy lifting, construction, destruction kind of stuff? No. 
Now, they climb up the stairs to the roof and make their own way in. So back in Jesus' day, a home would typically be one story, and it would feature an external set of stairs going up to the roof. And the roof was constructed by laying large beams, kind of like eye beams, like construction beams, across the home. And then they would add branches, mud, and plaster to fill in the gaps. And then that would make the roof relatively watertight. So imagine, if you will, Jesus is teaching in this crowded room. Everybody's like really close to him, but they're not that close because, you know, you want to stay out of the, uh, out of, um, the speaking range. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, everybody's pretty close. Uh, I'm sure people are just backing up. Okay, talk to us, Jesus. Let's talk. He's, he's speaking in a crowded room. People are packed in like sardines. And all of a sudden, little, little something comes down from the roof. And you're thinking, okay, well, whatever, maybe there's, maybe some cat got up there. But, you know, it happens every day. There's always something up there. And then more and more comes down and people are wondering, what in the world's going on? What kind of cat is this? And who's been feeding this cat? And, you know, maybe it's a group of cats or maybe it's a bunch of stray dogs. Who's, what is up there? And then more and more starts coming down and then all of a sudden light peeks through. And everybody's kind of looking at the homeowner like, what you got going on up there? And then before long, you see a face. And you see a pallet. You see a stretcher. You see someone being lowered in front of Jesus. Right in the middle of teaching. I mean, we talk about, oh, oh some, some, some baby crying in the middle of service. No, this is a, quite a bit more disruptive. <laughs> it's, this is something you can't, I mean, no speaker recovers from this one, I think. <laughs> you can't just keep going, oh, yeah, it's an amen in the back. No, 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 it's the roof is coming down. Everybody's wondering if they should flee. And you're kind of sitting there, stop. And so this is the paralytic's predicament. And this is what these men do. And in response... Before the curious crowds, and in response to the paralytic's predicament, Jesus makes a powerful pronouncement. Number three, Jesus makes a powerful pronouncement. Verse five says that Jesus, seeing their faith, he saw their faith. You know, other people might have reacted with annoyance or irritation. I know that if it were my home, I would kind of be wondering... Who are you? (laughs) Why have you destroyed my roof? There is not a homeowner's insurance claim on this one. This is just plain, uh, what are you doing to my house? But Jesus saw this act and he recognized this act for what it truly was. He recognized that the actions came came out of a deep faith in Jesus' ability to heal. Why else would someone destroy a stranger's home? lift off the roof when the home was completely fine. You know, most regular people would have been turned off at the sight of such a large crowd. Most people would have said, it's standing room only. I'm sorry, I guess we got here too late. Let's just go back and we'll hear about it later. Maybe we can stand in a, at a visual range and kind of watch and wait and see where Jesus goes next and we'll, we'll, we'll run ahead of him. But these five men were persistent. Because they needed to see Jesus. They just had to see Jesus. Instead of being turned away by the crowd and leaving, they were willing to ruin someone else's home so that this paralytic could see Jesus in the hopes that this paralytic would be healed. 
It was their deep faith that drove them to desperate measures. And Jesus saw that. But the question is, how would he respond? Verse 5 says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Not what you were expecting. In an interesting turn of events, Jesus forgives the paralytic sin. Jesus gives what has not been requested. Everyone present assumed that the greatest problem this paralytic faced was the fact that he couldn't walk, was the fact that he was on a pallet, was the fact that he needed to be dragged everywhere and brought by four people, by four men, one on each corner. Everybody assumed in the room, this is the man's problem. But Jesus sees more than that. And in his wisdom and understanding, Jesus addressed the paralyzed man's greatest problem. His relationship with God. We are often guilty of thinking that our biggest problems are physical. But the biggest problem that the world faces today is the need for forgiveness. They need God. And Jesus knew this. He ministered to this paralytic in the most important way. But this powerful pronouncement triggered a definite dilemma, which is the fourth act of this story. The definite dilemma. Look with me at verses 6 to 8. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Jesus' words had an amazing effect on the crowds. Because they had never heard someone say a person's, an individual person's sins were forgiven. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they might hear a priest say, y'all's sins are forgiven. And the sins of the nation have been forgiven. Right? It would be a corporate, a group. Okay, this is a group plan. A group forgiveness. Not an individual Jesus takes the group and says, no, 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 you're, you, my friend, you, the one lying down on the pallet, you, your sins are forgiven. And so these, these people, in particular, these, these Pharisees, these scribes, they sat there and they, they critiqued Jesus's words. They said, wait a second, you may be some teacher and you may be able to do some sort of healing as we've heard, but we're not sure where your power comes from. They critiqued Jesus' words. They took issue with what Jesus said. Everyone else was shocked to hear it because, oh, that's, that's new. I don't think we've ever heard that before. But the scribes and the Pharisees, because Luke chapter 5 tells us that the Pharisees were also there. So these scribes, these experts in the law, and the Pharisees, these people who were, who were kind of known for their uh, fastidious zeal for the law, they took issue with what Jesus said. Everybody else is shocked the, the, the Pharisees and scribes were kind of appalled. They were not just surprised. They were a little bit, they were put off. <laughs> now, scribes and Pharisees, of course, were widely respected within the times of Jesus. 
In fact, it, it would be easy for us to skip over certain things or certain, uh, certain uh, details in this passage. But if you look, look at what verse 6 says. But some of the scribes, what? Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. <laughs> in a room crowded so that people can't even get in, you got some people sitting down. Apparently it was packed like sardines in the house. But you know what? These are scribes. These are respected people. These are our teachers. These are our, 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 our vener- the venerated people in society. And, and so even though it's a crowded room, it's a crowded house, even though there are people standing outside the door, even though there are five men who are trying to get in the door and they can't even get in the door, the, you, the scribes are still sitting down. Because, you know, they're respected. And these scribes and Pharisees, being experts in scripture, they hear Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven. Your, not y'all's sins are forgiven. It's you, personally. You, individually. You, singular. You, your sins are forgiven. They ask themselves, they thought to themselves, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, remember, it says that they were thinking to themselves. This was not said aloud. Though silent in speech, they mentally accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of being irreverent towards God. Now, it's interesting, you know, what is blasphemy and what does that look like? Back in those days, there were three ways you could blaspheme. Number one, you speak evil of God's law. To speak against the Torah or the writings or any part of scripture was considered disrespectful and was considered blasphemy. To speak against God's word was to speak against the God of the word and therefore it was disrespectful. It was blasphemy. Number two, the second way to commit blasphemy was to speak evil about God himself. This was worse than speaking evil of God's law because God's law is, uh, by speaking evil of God's law, you, you in some sense, by extension, are speaking evil of the God who wrote the law and who gave the law. But if you spoke of God, you spoke evil about God himself directly, there's, there's no doubt to that. That's a, that's a greater That would be a greater form of blasphemy. A worse form. But the third and worst form of blasphemy, okay, was to assume the rights and privileges of God and God alone. Doing that was the equivalent to making yourself God. So you could speak evil about God's law. You could speak evil about God himself. Or you could pretend to be God. You could presume to be God. And that was the worst form of blasphemy. You cannot do what only God can do. Who are you to impersonate and call yourself the Lord Most High? So the scribes here are accusing Jesus of blasphemy through this third way. Through this third uh, form of blasphemy. They reason, okay... Only God can forgive sins. True. Got it. And then number two is God, Jesus is saying that he is forgiving sin. So therefore, Jesus is claiming to be God. Because Jesus is doing something that only God himself can do. That God and God alone is able to do. So the conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is committing blasphemy by claiming to be God. And aware of their thoughts, Jesus turns to them, verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? 
two quick observations to make here. First, Jesus is aware of their thoughts. Right? He was reading their minds. They had not been talking aloud. Jesus is already displaying something akin to being God. In fact, by, by, by calling them out on their thoughts, it would have been similar. Oh, that's kind of like you're assuming the rights of God. How did you know I was thinking that? Right? But second, another quick observation. Jesus does not refute or contradict their logical reasoning. In fact, these scribes had the right reasoning. Only God can forgive sins. That is true. Jesus is forgiving this man's sins. That is also true. Jesus is agreeing, does not refute their logic. He, re, he contradicts their conclusion. See, he, he, Jesus was okay with them all the way until the therefore, right? Because essentially, if God is only God can forgive sins, that's true. And if Jesus is forgiving sins, that's true. You have two ways to go. Either Jesus is God or Jesus is blaspheming by claiming to do what only God can do. And so verse 9 gives us a divine demonstration. So we've got the curious crowds, the paralytics predicament, the powerful pronouncement, the definite dilemma, and fifth, the divine demonstration. In verse 9, Jesus is now putting them on the stand, right? They have questions of Jesus in their hearts. Jesus is now questioning them for everyone to hear. Verse 9, he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Now, I think oftentimes we read this and we're just kind of like, oh yeah, that's an interesting question. And we don't actually answer. We kind of assume it's a rhetorical question. But perhaps we should take the time to actually think this through. He asks, which is easier to say to the paralytic? The answer is, your sins are forgiven. It's easier to say. Not because... Uh, not because uh, there are less syllables, uh, not because the words themselves are more difficult to pronounce, but because you can't prove that it happened and you can't contradict that it happened. Right? When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's not like all of a sudden, oh, and you know, some halo descends and then it's like, you know, envelops the person and he's like, oh, and then it kind of goes forgiven on the top. That doesn't happen. So, so who's going to say otherwise, right? Your sins are forgiven. No, they weren't. Well, how do you know? Well, how do you know? And then you just kind of go back and forth about theoreticals. So what's easier? Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you don't have to prove it. There's nothing demonstrable. There's nothing manifest. There's nothing that physically you can see and verify. You cannot physically verify that forgiveness has taken place. On the other hand... If you told someone, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk, then everyone would be able to see and confirm. See, this paralytic was around town. He was probably local. He was close enough that people in the room might have said, oh, I recognize that guy. Oh, he's at that gate guy. or that, he, Oh, he's the guy who's outside this building. They may have given to this man who was probably begging on the streets before. They know this guy. So they know that he really is paralyzed. It's not like some... It, he's, not, he's not playing a part. He's not acting. They know that he really is paralyzed. And so if Jesus were to tell him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk, everybody would be like, well, let's see this. Because they would want to see the proof, right? 
But Jesus here wants to prove that he is the authority to forgive sins. And his actions of teaching and healing ultimately will demand a verdict from the people who are watching. Look with me at verses 10 to 12. Jesus says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man, this is a way that Jesus refers to himself, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up, and immediately picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So Jesus here proves that he really does have the authority to forgive sins. He proves that his authority to forgive, he proves that he has this kind of authority by producing a miracle. I said your sins are forgiven. You all cannot verify whether that was true or not. So let me show you something that is verifiable. Let me show you something that you can see, that you can touch. Let me show you the authority that God the Father has given to me. And like so many others, this healing was immediate. It was effective and it was complete. The paralytic stood up, picked up his pallet and walked out. And presumably home. He did not need physical therapy. He did not need how to learn how to walk. He did not have to go through range of motion exercises or strengthen, or, or strengthen himself. You know, no, 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 no injections necessary. You know, to ease the pain. He didn't have to, you know, apply Ben Gay and stuff. So here's the argument that Jesus is making. He's making the following argument: I showed you I could heal, and that's impossible. And you know it. But you also know that what is impossible for man is possible for God. I gave you physical, demonstrable proof that I could do what I said I would do. So when I say this man's sins are forgiven, believe me. And as a result of Jesus' miracle, it's a double miracle, really. It's the forgiveness of sin and the physical healing. As a result of this miracle, these miracles, the people were amazed and were glorifying God. So let me point you to three specific responses that you should have to this passage. And one of which is the core of why I I entitled this message... I, I made the topic of this message faithful friendship. The first is that you need to care for the outcasts. You need to care for the outcasts. Paralytics were at the bottom of the social ladder. Since almost everything back then required some physical labor, paralytics were kind of considered useless to society. And as a result, paralytics and anyone with physical deformities became beggars. They were forced to panhandle just to make a few pennies. While practically everyone saw that this paralytic was useless, Jesus took the time to minister to him. Jesus cares for everyone in society, and that includes the outcasts of society. He ministers to their spiritual and to their physical needs. And the lesson we need to learn this morning is that we need to put on this kind of compassion for others. We need to love the unlovable 
and step beyond and out of our comfort zones. We need to start seeing people as souls. They are all souls in need of God's love. We need to have Jesus' compassion for all people, not just the ones who fit in. Not just for people we are comfortable with. Not just people who look like us, talk like us, or like the same things we do. Not just for the smooth talkers. You know, the people that you, you feel like you could talk to for hours. But we also have to have a love for the people that, well, are not so smooth. <laughs> that are frankly awkward. <sighs> they have souls as well. We need to have a heart to reach out to the lost no matter how they look, no matter how awkward they are, no matter how much it makes us feel uncomfortable. And we need to reach out to them in tangible and helpful ways. But like Jesus, we should never neglect the spiritual condition. Give them water, but point them to the living water. Embrace this kind of compassion of Jesus Christ by caring for outcasts. Second, and this application is really the reason for this message, is you must develop deep friendships. You must develop deep friendships. In our passage this morning, Jesus reached out to minister to a man who was paralyzed. And this man could not have gotten there on his own. By definition, (laughs) he would not have been able to get there by himself. Somebody had to bring him there. Somebody who loved this paralyzed man enough to see his dire need. To take the time out to care for this man and to bring him to the person he most needs to meet. He doesn't get there on his own. He doesn't get there by himself. And so these friends were faithful to care. And you know, there's not much explicitly stated about their friendship, but you can infer quite a bit from the text. This paralytic was assisted by four friends. Surely they were true and faithful friends. They did not shun this friend of theirs, this paralytic. In contrast, they carried him to see Jesus. And when they encountered a house that was overcrowded, that seemed like standing room only, people lining up outside the door, everybody trying to get a look, they try to push their way through, Luke 5 tells us. But they realize that ain't going to happen. And instead of being discouraged, instead of saying, well, that's it, we got to wrap up shop, I'm sorry about that, bro, we're going to get you back to your corner so you can continue panhandling so that you can survive for the next 24 hours, they go up top of roof and they ruin someone else's house because this friend needs their help. This is the kind of passionate, deep, faithful friendship that says, I need to care for you. This is genuine and heartfelt care. This is an example of sacrificial love. And my hope is that this church will be a place where these kinds of deep friendships flourish where they grow, where they take root. My hope is that you would reach out and love one another well. 
My hope is that you would rejoice with those who rejoice and that you would mourn with those who mourn. My hope is that you might bear one another's burdens and care compassionately for each other. I said it yesterday, we live in a world of constant communication. I mean, how many notifications did you just miss today? How many endless updates do you receive? How many of them are actually important? Due to technological advances, we are more connected than ever before. We communicate with greater convenience than previous generations, than all the generations before. But do you have community? Do you have those faithful friends who will knock out someone's roof for you? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to go out and destroy people's homes. But having that kind of friend is a blessing that quite frankly not everyone has. You know, you can be surrounded by hundreds of people in a crowded room and still be lonely. And you could be swimming in an ocean of water and still be thirsty. And you can come to church week after week, month after month, year after year, and still be somewhat anonymous. In talking to people, you recognize that y'all are pretty smart. (laughs) And you take mental notes. You may know about people's situations, but you also know that that person doesn't talk much about it. Like maybe a detail slips out, and then it kind of like, oh, that was an interesting, wait, what did you say? But you don't pursue it because you're afraid that it might be awkward. You're afraid that you might offend? I would say, reach out in love when you hear things like that. Wait, did you just say that? How are you doing? Are you okay? You know, sometimes the details are kind of in the background, like background music, like elevator music. And we know that if we were to put those details together, not that we're all trying to play Nancy Drew, we're not trying to uh, you know, imitate the Hardy Boys, but we put it together and we're like, ooh, that's a, that seems like a rough situation. And then we just kind of pull up. And we kind of say, I got enough drama in my life. I got enough things going on in my life. I don't want to involve myself in another situation. This is the church. It's supposed to be a family. And every believer is meant to be part of the local church. Christ did not die so that you could be in a church of acquaintances. Christ did not adopt you into his family so that you could be estranged. God designed the church to be interconnected as a body. To love where a place, a place where you would love one another like family. And not the dysfunctional family. 
We are needy people, all of us, and, but we are also needed. We are needy and we are needed. And we can receive help from others and we can also give help to others. As leaders in this church, let me add that Roger and Jenny are no different. They need genuine and deep friendships just as much as anyone else. They need friends who will help when they are having difficulty. They need people who are willing to share the burden of of the crushing weight of ministry. They need faithful servants who are willing to take up responsibility in the church. All of us need faithful friends in our lives. But it starts by being a faithful friend. I hear people, sometimes they check out churches and, and, and you know, it, it's like it's like a Yelp diatribe. You know, it's like, they're like, oh, well, I walked into service and nobody came out to greet me. You know, I, I walked in and people did not bend down to tie my shoes or wash my feet and... Yeah, you know, sermon just didn't really do it for me. I'm not sure if I really like the pastor's long hair. <laughs> or his mustache. You know, and, and you kind of you go, I don't know if I like the music set. I don't know if I like that rhythm. It's, uh, and it was like, it, 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 they kind of talk about it like the church exists for you, right? <laughs> it's church as you like it. Man, when's the last time you tried that with your parents? <laughs> Mom and dad, where's the, where's the, where's the robe? I'm home. <laughs> the, the robe and the scepter? I, I, I got home. I've been here for like five minutes. I'm, I'm, I'm the king come home. Your parents would never do that. They're like, no, you're part of this family. You're not here to be waited on. Or, 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 you're not a king come home from war. What do you, who do you think you are? Your family. Hey, you know your family? You need to do that laundry for the family. Hey, you know your family? We got some dishes over there. You know your family. You know, I think um, uh, we're like uh, around Salinas and Miranda's, uh, some of Miranda's uncle's aunt lives in, in Salinas. I remember we went over to her um, now deceased uh, grandmother's house and uh, we were going to host the grandmother was going to host some people, and it was like meet the meet one of the cousins, meet one of the grandkids, you know, girlfriend uh, for the first time. And so everybody's kind of freaking out. We better make this place look nice, you know. But Miranda's grandmother at the time, I think, was like ninety nine or a hundred. So you know, there's dust, uh, there's stuff to be cleaned. And I remember, I remember uh, Miranda's aunt came up to me uh, with a rag in hand, and she kind of came up to me, she said, "Hey, John." I'm like, "Hey." And uh, you know, she's like, "Well, do you want to be a, you want to be a guest, or you want to be family?" And I was like, "What do you mean? I am family. I'm married in. No, like <laughs> I'm, I am family. It's just, it's not. I, I didn't know I could opt out. There was an opt out. I missed that. Did I sign something? No. And she just, and she looked at me, and I said, "I am family. It's not a question. I am part of this family." And she just looked down. Hand me the rag and said, "Well, help out, because that's family, right?" So, Grace Bay Area, this is family. This is your family. 
These are the people you hang out with and, and chat, you know, outside next to the fire pit. These are the people that you play with, that you hang out with, that you laugh with, that you play games with. These are the people that you take walks with. These are the people that you rejoice with. These are the people that you mourn with. These are your blood-brought brothers and sisters in Christ. Be family. Be faithful friends to one another. Love each other with that kind of deep, visceral love. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. With that, let me close us in a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, as this weekend draws to a close, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you meet, our, you meet us in our desperate hour of need. And only you could save us. You alone are God. And Lord, you not only save us, but you, you graft us in. You, you adopt us as your sons and as your daughters. And you give us a new family, not by the blood that flows through our veins, but by the blood that was shed by your son, Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, to be family, truthfully, to love one another with that kind of familial love, with that kind of deep love, with the love that would even be willing to tear down a roof. Help us to care for each other well. Help us to reach beyond our, our discomfort at times. Because Lord, you matter. And the family you've placed us in matters. And help us, Lord, to love one another well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.